Welcome to Psychedelicast. Hosted by Clinton Cayley, this show is an interview-based podcast focused on offering listeners in-depth information concerning plant medicines, entheogens, and all subjects tangential to psychedelia. Join us in prying open the third eye. Hello to you, ladies and gentlemen of the podcasting world. Welcome to Psychedelicast. I'm Clinton Cayley. I'm your host, as always. Super excited to be with you once again. Thank you so much for tuning into today's episode nine, an interview-based episode featuring none other than Mike J, the author. Uh, Mike J is a leading specialist in the study of drugs across history and cultures, the author of Artificial Paradises, Emperors of Dreams, and The Atmosphere of Heaven. His critical writing on drugs has appeared in many publications, including The Guardian, The Telegraph, and the International Journal of Drug Policy. He sits on the editorial board of the addiction journal Drugs and Alcohol Today and on the board of the Transform Drug Policy Foundation. He is currently based out of England. The majority of our conversation today is focused on his latest book, Mescaline, A Global History of the First Psychedelic. It's a definitive history of mescaline that explores its mind-altering effects across cultures from ancient America to Western modernity. Mescaline became a popular sensation in the mid-20th century through Aldous Huxley's The Doors of Perception, after which the word psychedelic was coined to describe it. Its story, however, extends deep into prehistory. The earliest Andean cultures depicted mescaline containing cacti in their temples. Mescaline was isolated in 1897 from the peyote cactus, first encountered by Europeans during the Spanish conquest of Mexico. During the 20th century, it was used by psychologists investigating the secrets of consciousness, spiritual seekers from Aleister Crowley to the president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, artists exploring the creative process, and psychiatrists looking to cure schizophrenia. Meanwhile, peyote played a vital role in preserving and shaping Native American identity, drawing on botany, pharmacology, ethnography, and the mind sciences, and examining the mescaline experiences of figures from William James to Walter Benjamin to Hunter S. Thompson, Jay's latest book is an enthralling narrative of mescaline's many lives. So, so excited to offer you guys this fascinating interview today. Stay tuned, Psychedelicasters. Here at Psychedelicast, we are currently interested in finding new sponsorships and promotions to run at this point of the show. Um, if you or someone that you know or business that you're involved with has any service, product, um, offering to the culture, please uh, contact us via any of our social love to partner with you and do some sort of a promotional package uh, or you know podcast ad sharing anything like that we are open and looking for those opportunities please feel free to contact me um, on instagram at psychedelicast or on facebook at psychedelicast via message that's the best way to reach me at this point with those uh, questions comments or concerns thank you so much Just a couple things to cover here before we get into the interview. Um, 
we're going to go ahead and remind you at this point to please reach out and get involved in that GoFundMe campaign for Baba Kalindi Yee's family. Uh, they've now well surpassed what they initially set the goal for, but in these trying times, for those of us who can help, we should be helping. I implore you to check out that GoFundMe campaign and to donate and do what you can for that family in this time of need. Baba Kalindi Ayi will be sorely missed. Other than that, folks, I would really appreciate you guys if you'll go on over to at Psychedelicast on both Facebook and Instagram. Follow us there. Uh, like our page and stay tuned to those platforms because we do a lot of promotion in the culture there. We share a lot of things that I think are cool. We share a lot of good information there and we also promote the podcast there. Um, so go ahead and follow us over there. If you're listening on iTunes, do me a huge favor while you listen to this. Just scroll down to the bottom of our podcast page. Click the little five-star review thing. Drop us a few stars on there, however many you think we deserve. And if it wouldn't be too much to ask, I would certainly appreciate it if you'd type out a little review message there for us. These type of things help us to be more visible in the podcast arena, and it would be a great service to me, and it won't take much time from you at all. Uh, most importantly, on whatever podcast catcher you're using, be it Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, what have you, if you would subscribe to the show, that would be of great benefit to me and to the show in general. Thank you guys so much for engaging with us via the social media uh, outlets, and thank you so much for being involved in the show. We greatly appreciate it, and that's why we do this, to offer you, the listener, good information, great guests, and cool shows. So, once again, I appreciate everybody who has been involved thus far. Thank you for those of you who are going to be involved. Let's talk a little psychedelic news. Today in psychedelic news, I'd like to share with you guys an article from phys.org. That's P-H-Y-S dot org. This article was written yesterday, April the 16th, published yesterday, April the 16th, pardon me, uh, by the Technical University of Denmark, entitled Psychedelic Compound for Magic Mushrooms Produced in Yeast. Psilocybin mushrooms have been found to have minimal harmful effects and could potentially benefit those with depression but they remain illegal even though they offer a groundbreaking alternative to several undertreated psychological conditions. Nevertheless, psychedelics are currently riding a wave of positive momentum brought on by cannabis, and if psilocybin gets approved as a pharmaceutical drug, production in yeast appears to be the most commercially viable option. A quote here from Nick Milne, former postdoc at DTU, Biosustain, and CSO, and co-founder of Oct Octarine Bio, to quote this gentleman, it's unfeasible and way too expensive to extract psilocybin from magic mushrooms, and the best chemical synthesis methods require expensive and difficult to source starting substrates. Thus, there is a need to bring down the cost of production and to provide a more consistent supply chain. Bio-based production of psilocybin has garnered major interest and researchers have already proved small-scale production in E. coli. However, Production in bacteria comes with a, a wide range of concerns, which can be addressed by using yeast instead. In yeast, the scientists prove that psilocybin can be produced de novo, which means that you can produce the molecule by simply growing the yeast with sugar and other nutrients without the need to add any other starting substrates. Producing psilocybin de novo in E. coli is difficult since a key enzyme in the biosynthetic pathway doesn't work in bacteria. 
And so to get around this problem, you need to add an expensive starting substrate, making the whole production process too costly. To quote Irina Borodina, a group leader at DTU Biosustain, since yeast and psilocybe mushrooms are quite closely related species, this enzyme works very well in yeast, providing a much more cost-efficient alternative. Additionally, yeast also performs better in large-scale fermentation due to its long history in the beer brewing process, and also in the purification process since E. coli produces additional, potentially harmful compounds that you would not like to have in your final product. In the study published in Metabolic Engineering Journal, the researchers reached fairly high titers, but if production should be scaled up, one major obstacle needs to be overcome. On psilocybin's core skeleton sits a phosphate group, which is cleaved off when the molecule is converted to its active form. To quote here from Mr. Milne again, what we find in the study is that we get a lot of this non-phosphorylated compound psilocin. Essentially, we are losing half of our product because the phosphate group falls off. Dealing with this high amount of psilocin is something that absolutely needs to be solved before realistically moving to a production process. To fix the issue, a lot more metabolic engineering needs to be done. The good thing for the scientists is that the starting point is a well-studied pathway called the Shikimate pathway. There is already a lot of experience working with it, so from that point of view, it should be pretty straightforward. While de novo production of psilocybin and yeast in these titers should be considered impressive as a proof of concept, the researchers behind the study also underline the importance of producing other natural and novel derivatives. Psilocybe mushrooms also produce a range of molecules that are structurally similar to psilocybin, but are too difficult to purify, making research into their therapeutic effect difficult. In this study, the researchers demonstrated the production of a range of psilocybin pathway derivatives, and further, by combining genes from the melatonin biosynthetic pathway, could demonstrate the production of a completely novel molecule. This technology has been transferred to Octarine Bio, a spin-out company from the Novo Nordisk Foundation Center for Biosustainability, uh, aka DTU Biosustain, and the University of Copenhagen, who are interested not only in the large-scale production of psilocybin, but also the potential of producing new derivatives. To quote Mr. Milne for one final time, our interest is not only to make kilogram-scale production of psilocybin, but to use the biological machinery to make new derivatives that aren't available today. Thus, it is very useful that we could not only demonstrate the production of psilocybin, but also find many derivatives that could turn out to have important therapeutic relevance. Fascinating article there. Great information today. Um, on a side note for the show, I forgot to mention just a few moments ago, in the interest of offering you, the listener, novel and interesting psychedelic research, news, and reviews, we're going to alter the scheduling of the psychedelic review versus the psychedelic news slightly. On days that you get an interview, such as today, you're going to get a psychedelic news article. Um, on the days that you get a solo cast from me and a reading, we're going to give you a psychedelic review. Uh, the reasoning behind this is so that we aren't giving you the same information over and over about psychedelics, uh, pardon me, about psilocybin um, being used to treat uh, PTSD and things of that nature. Uh, a lot of the information about psychedelics comes out very slowly, so we think that two-week intervals between psychedelic news will be more effective to give new and interesting information to you. 
Um, we also want to run the news with an interview because those are more hard fact based style episodes and we want to run the psychedelic review with the reading because the readings are my own personal creative outlet and the psychedelic review is my own personal interpretation of the media so you're going to get one or one or the other each week you'll get a news segment with the interview and you'll get the review segment with the reading without further ado let's hear from mr mike J. this uh, afternoon or evening uh, pretty good yeah late afternoon here beautiful sunny uh, isolated you know in the middle of my um, 14 days um, strict self-isolation yeah okay so I was gonna ask you what I mean we might as well get that out of the way first sure. what does it look like uh, where you're at like on the street level what is it like what is life like over there right now well, I'm not a great person to ask because I'm self-isolating, but yeah. I, was in, I was in London last week and that was kind of, um, yeah, that was starting to get a little kind of walking dead, you know? Yeah. But I was um, Skyping yesterday with my friend who lives in Parma in Italy and, you know, he was saying that it's seriously grim. You know, they're like two weeks ahead of us and um right in the middle of it and uh you know his thing was you know we're like a whole you know population sort of our, our generation and the generation before us who've kind of lived in you know with pretty much kind of total liberty sort of chafing against any interference from the state and uh you know when the government starts saying this is really serious and urgent then we just kind of ignore them and tune them out uh -huh. and he's saying they just they did that's what they did over there because of course in italy nobody believes their politicians you know they're all kind of um corrupt and incompetent lying you know whatever so uh, -huh. uh so they were just uh, they didn't take it seriously but he was saying like now you know, those days are gone. You know, this is not going to happen again like this because if anybody ever says, um, you know, if one of these things starts up again, you know, in Italy, nobody is going to go, oh, yeah, they're always saying that. It's like, you know, everybody's sitting in their apartments and they're just watching the uh, watching the news and seeing the dead bodies pile up in the hospitals and it's um, serious shit. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, well, I guess it's kind of like, uh, the little boy who cried wolf, you know, dealing with these government, with these politicians. Um, it's certainly that, and it's also, I think people don't understand exponential. Uh, you know, as he was saying, it's like, you know, if you've got a pond and it's got one lily leaf in it, and in 60 days' time it's going to be full of lily leaves, you know, then on day 59 it's half full, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and yeah. that's what we're not seeing in these early stages. Exactly, exactly. Is the way, that, yeah, the exponential growth. Yeah, it's it's a strange time, and it's pretty getting it's getting pretty scary. I just talked about this on a podcast I did yesterday. Um, I was at a grocery, my local grocery store, uh, about three days ago, mm -hmm. and, it, and it opened at eight a.m. And I 
I go there all the time. There's never anyone there, but there was a line out front, which I kind of expected. Um, and as they opened the doors, everybody kind of started like rushing the door and like jostling for yeah. the shopping carts and stuff. And it wasn't particularly violent, but it made me uncomfortable. And I was just kind of like extrapolating this situation a month in the future and thinking, wow, uh, if people are already kind of this uptight about getting a shopping cart and getting into the grocery um, at this stage, mm-hmm. I can only have- I can only imagine what it's going to look like in a month or two when, you know, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. It looks well, pretty I'm creepy there. You know, we're hoping it's not so bad. You know, and in a way, it's like you tell people you're going to lock them down, you know, and people start panic buying and it kind of escalates and everybody wants to have a few days worth of stuff. But I think, um, I mean, to judge by what Paul was saying in Italy, you know, two or three weeks down the line, that becomes kind of, you know, it's kind of settles down. There's the supermarket. You can go, like, on your own, you know, like once every few days, and you buy what's there, and, you know, it's, um, you know, so I think that, um, you know, that kind of zombies dawn of the dead bit is, like, just this phase. Yeah, I hope so. Um, yeah, it's getting weird out there. Well, let's... Uh... Are you in, the, you in the city? Yeah, I'm in Houston, Texas. I'm in Houston. Right, yeah. So um, I'm in the middle of a big, giant metropolis. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's just now kind of starting to touch us. Um, I work in emergency medicine as well. So right. um, it's it's just now starting to gain some traction here in this city. I think we had, from the facility I worked at last night, we had our first confirmed case there at some point this week. I wasn't there for it, but mm-hmm. they were telling me last night, yeah, we did have a confirmed case. I personally haven't seen any confirmed cases yet. I haven't uh, come in contact with anybody, luckily, um, but I've heard chatter um, about them being present here in the city. So I think there's like 19 or 20, but I don't really know. It'd be great if we were testing, right? You know, because I had last week, I had a kind of you know, a dry cough and a little bit of a fever. And I know quite a lot of people who had that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, like, I wouldn't even have mentioned it as a, you know, to anybody if, if it weren't for the current situation. But, you know, is that mild COVID? You know, are a whole ton of people getting that? Are we yeah. going to immune? Like, who knows until we get proper testing rolled out? Exactly. Exactly. Well, let's get into this episode, this podcast episode today. Welcome Mike J to the show. How um, it's really cool for me to be talking to you. Um, I'm a big right. fan of yours. Oh, it's a great pleasure to talk to you, Clint. All right, I'm real. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, we're a new show. We have a marginal reach at this point, but um, I've been reading your book, Mescaline: A Global History of the First Psychedelic, and. Uh, it's really cool. It's really easy to read. Um, Good. I really, I really enjoy that. Actually, uh, I shouldn't say reading because that would be um, facetious of me. I've been listening to the audiobook version that you put out. How are you finding the audio reading? I really enjoy it. Um, I quite enjoy it. I think the narrator did a really good job. It's easy to follow along. Um, I, I'm really enjoying it. I'm about halfway through right now. Uh, let's see. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of. I'm just to the part about uh, where you're kind of going 
getting into Aleister Crowley. Yeah, right. So so that's where I'm at um, in the in the reading so far, but I'm really enjoying it. I think you, you, you did a good job with the audiobook version. Um, that's how I mostly consume my my reading nowadays, I guess. It's just easier for me to um, listen in the car during my commute and during workouts. And since I work overnight, I also have a lot of opportunity to consume media that way. Right. So I always love it when uh, new books and good good literature is uh, comes out with an audiobook version. So thank you for that. I was really pleased to, to, to get that, and I haven't listened to it all the way through, but uh, yeah, what I heard sounded really good. Yep, I think I think it sounds like a good quality product. I'm excited to finish it. Also, I can like uh, there's a setting where I can speed it up to like 1.25 or one and a half times reading. Yeah, and it and it still sounds good. It doesn't sound like distorted, and so I can kind of consume it at an even even quicker clip, which uh, which I like. Yeah, he's got kind of like a, a nice, rich, uh, quite slow voice. So I guess you can do that a little, yeah. Absolutely. Kudos on the uh, audiobook version. So uh, I want to kind of start there. Um, so it seems to be a mix of history, ethnobotany, anthropology, pharmacology, all centered around um, this somewhat obscure alkaloid known as mescaline. Uh, what led you to this in-depth look at what I would consider a somewhat obscure uh, drug in the hallucinogen family? Yeah, it's got a funny status, mescaline, because everyone's kind of heard of it. It's sort of legendary, you know, because of Aldous Huxley, you know, and uh, Hunter S. Thompson and all these famous mescaline trips. But, um, you know, there's not a lot of kind of you know, pure mescaline around these days. I mean, the, the cacti are having a resurgence and we'll come to that. But, uh, you know, I guess what interested me about mescaline is that when people talk about the history of psychedelics, it always seems to start in the 50s, you know, with Hoffman and the invention uh, of, you know, the discovery of LSD. Mm -hmm. And mescaline is a way of going, well, actually, there's a much longer history of uh, Western engagement with psychedelics because mescaline was isolated from the peyote cactus way back in the 1890s. And there's a whole endless forgotten stories about kind of the first scientists and the first doctors to take it and all these people who took it in the in the 1920s and the 1930s, modernists and surrealists and avant-gardists. So it immediately gives us a completely different history of psychedelics from what we're used to. Mm -hmm. And the second thing about it is that, um, you know, the first, you know, half of the whole history of mescaline is really about the cacti and about, you know, centuries and millennia of uh, indigenous Native American use. So it's a kind of chance to tell those two stories in parallel, um, you know, to see what a psychedelic like mescaline is uh, in indigenous cultures and then to see what it became for us in the modern West, in our kind of Western medical scientific modern culture. And, you know, these two streams cross over in interesting ways, but you're not kind of comparing them, but you can just tell those two stories together. And I wanted to do that, too. Sure, sure. And I really liked the way you did that. Um, I particularly enjoyed the retelling of the kind of Native American story um, because myself, I actually just uh, sat in my first Native American half moon ceremony right. um, 
Yeah, about that was about two months ago, I think. Where about so, uh, there's a church here in the Houston area. It's a multi modality, uh, multi medicine church, mm -hmm. and they they offer all various plant medicines. Uh, they do San Pedro as well. They the peyote. Um, the peyote ceremonies are a little more rare because the shaman that they uh, that facilitates is kind of a traveling shaman who moves mm -hmm. from he moves from Mexico all the way up to Canada and really he travels around the around the world um, so they kind of have to catch him as he's coming back through um, but right. they are also you know it should be you know this it, there are serious conservation issues around peyote at the moment mm -hmm. uh, you know this is one of the things that i'm always quite keen to stress the demand is going up the native american church is 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 huge the supply mm -hmm. is dwindling you know down in the kind of around laredo you know a lot of places where the peyote used to be harvested it isn't anymore so there's not a lot of peyote to go around and by mm -hmm. contrast there is so much san pedro to go around you know Pretty much the whole of Andean South South America is covered in San Pedro. Uh, San Pedro is very easy and fast to grow. So I think mm -hmm. um, the people kind of moving into this field of exploration, um, unless you've got a really good ethical source of uh, peyote, I think San you know San Pedro is the ethical choice. Sure. Um, and the the I shouldn't say shaman. They call themselves. Uh, they call he called himself a roadman, which yeah. is kind of the the Native American shaman, if you will, although he he makes it very clear at the beginning of ceremony, he holds up a little peyote button and he says, "This is the shaman. I'm not a shaman. I'm a roadman. I'm here to tend the fire and uphold the ceremony and and yeah, guide the." It's a very interesting distinction. The roadman is really kind of a a facilitator. He doesn't. It's not like kind of Mexico or the Wichol, you know, where the shaman has kind of specially developed spiritual powers uh mm -hmm. the um peyote meeting i went to in oklahoma uh the roadman was very careful to pass you know the wand and the rattle and all the sacred stuff right around the circle make sure everybody could touch it and rub it you know just to show you know this is all stuff that we have in common you sure. know if you want to kind of map it on to um you know uh it, the, you know the christian cultures that were around it at the time um, it seems to me the Native American church has got um, a lot of the ideas of, of Protestantism. You know, mm -hmm. everybody sits and prays together. Everybody is your, their own conscience. Everybody is their own priest. Um, you know, whereas the, the kind of Mexican tribal ideas, you know, more reflect in a way the Catholic culture around them that, uh, you know, this is, a, this is a sacrament and the shaman is someone with kind of special access to those realms. Mm -hmm. um so the road man he was uh, explaining to us um not in great detail but basically that the medicine that we were taking that night was ethically sourced um mm -hmm. and he and he he voiced that concern as well and he talked about that throughout good, the night good to get the word um, yeah e exactly um so and what you just said is very interesting because that was one of the strong that was one of the strongest senses I had during the ceremony was uh, I was almost it was almost funny because the sh the roadman 
and the entire ceremony was so similar to kind of my religious upbringing in like Southern style Christianity. Mm-hmm. I could, it was so colored with those beliefs and those kind of ideas that I found it pretty funny. And I thought, man, a lot of people that I went to church with, did they not know, first of all, were we not in a teepee? And did they not know that we were eating psychedelic cactus? Yeah. This this would be almost indistinguishable in uh, content as a, a Southern church service would be, you know? It was very, very uh, analogous. And I thought that was pretty interesting. Um, it is. Well, when the, when the teepee ceremony started, of course, it started on the reservations during the period of forced captivity, mm-hmm. you know, pretty much in the middle of a genocide. Yeah. And, um, you know, singing and dancing was prohibited on the reservations, you know, by the federal authorities and by the missionaries. And um, that the reason for the teepee ceremony was partly that this was something that could be done at night. You know, it was kind of clandestine. It was kind of hidden, I guess, like the early church in a way. And, um, you know, the people who were great at, um, you know, advocating for it and defending it and presenting it, people like Kwana Parker, the Comanche chief, you know, were very, um, you know, he was ne- he was never a Christian. He never converted. Most of the uh, Comanches did, but he never did. But uh, he learned to kind of frame it in that way. You know, he famously said, well, um, you know, the white man goes into his church and talks about Jesus and, you know, we go into our TP and we talk to Jesus. Yeah, sure. Um, there, so many parallels to those two uh, to those two worlds. And uh, I found that just fascinating. And I can see, uh, especially after going through your your uh, history uh, component of the peyote religion, um, kind of where that intermingling took place. Mm-hmm. And, and and it was you know it became much it, it made more sense to me because before before I went I hadn't read your book um, I had I meant to but I think it hadn't been released yet I think it was released like a week after I went so, right. so I was like I was kind of really wanting to uh, to read the book beforehand just to kind of do that final bit of research um, but at the end of the day you know these experiences kind of like ayahuasca I did months and months of research before I went and drank ayahuasca mm-hmm. and then and then when I'm in the maloca and I'm actually drinking the ayahuasca you know grandmother ayahuasca is laughing at me saying like did all your research prepare you for this experience yeah. absolutely absolutely not you know it's like nothing could have nothing could have prepared you for this you know yeah i think it's good to do the research after because also you have to take it in the framework and the way that you're being given it you know whether it's with the santa daime church say you know or in a kind of amazonian shamanic context you know that's really how you experience it and then it's after is the time to go well let's look at you know how did all this come together and what are all the other different ways that people have done it you know absolutely um so i did that with my uh, peyote experience i just wasn't particularly researched on it. Thank you. My girlfriend just brought me some coffee. <laughs> uh, so I, I wasn't heavily researched on it. So it, it didn't, uh, my experience was very novel and very unexpected. Uh, so that was really cool. You know, I kind of wished almost I had toned down the research aspect on my ayahuasca experience because I ended up reading like three or four books on it and just watching hours of video. And so my entire experience was heavily colored by my previous research, um, although it was still a very uh, 
intense and life altering experience regardless. Mm -hmm. It was just, you know, I had, I had a lot of information in my brain when I went already, whereas peyote, I basically went like, okay, I'm here. Uh, I'm not sure what's going to happen, but we're going to find out, you know? Yeah. I mean, I'd done, done a lot of research obviously before I did um, my peyote meeting and um, there were a lot of things that I didn't understand until after I'd done it. Uh, I found it very hard you know, if if you read all the stuff about it and read about it, the history, you know, it's different people have very different ideas as to, you know, for example, how Christian this is. Is this about God or there's a lot of religious imagery, but there's also a lot of stuff about the great spirit. And, you know, it took me, you know, when I was there, I found myself sitting with people who were, um, you know, very devoutly Christian and also people who were, you know, full on heathens, you know, who did not you know, I, I, I found out, you know, did not like to hear, you know, the word Jesus kind of mentioned in the teepee, you know, people coming from very different positions, but somehow uh -huh. everybody could kind of sit down there and, you know, be part of the circle and do the same thing together. And that was amazing to me. And I think that's one of the great strengths of it. And that's something that is very hard to understand unless you've experienced it. Sure. Um, and that was something to me that was also su pleasantly surprising was that I was uh, unaware of how communal the practice was, you know, how, how very um, engaging for all participants, whereas ayahuasca is engaging in a certain way, um, but generally it's in the dark, there's no light, you're on this very intense, uh, introspective, cerebral kind of uh, roller coaster ride, and there's some engagement between yourself and the shaman where he sings over you, or you may even have like that kind of uh, well, what I experienced was some sort of a telepathic connection due to my high dose or whatever. Um, but being the only two ceremonial uses I have to compare, I was like, wow, the peyote experience is a night and day difference because. You're engaged, you're encouraged to sing, you're encouraged to share, you're encouraged mm -hmm. to, you know, engage in the various aspects of ceremony. And I found that to be very endearing and comforting in a situation that could have been very uncomfortable. Definitely. Um, I mean, I think also they're very different materials. In a way, maybe it's the difference between tryptamines and phenethylamines. Sure. You know, the DMT is kind of you know, it's coming at you and it's kind of dark and it's like a bit like a ghost trade ride. And if you do it with a, um, as I have done with the Santa Dime Church, um, you're all kind of um, doing it commonly, but you're told very strictly, you know, focus on the lights, look at the altar, we're all going to sing this together. And it's all about keeping your soul and your spirit safe from the dark stuff. Whereas um, I think peyote, you know, um, you know, you 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 sense that it's um, uh, you know, it's it's a it's a phenethylamine, it's a heart opener. You know, it feels not so different from like you know the drugs kind of um, the similar to it like MDMA. You know, it feels like a much more open space, and the ceremony that you can build around it is quite different for that reason. Exactly. Um, I, I would say that the the best way I could describe the difference would be that ayahuasca is very very serious like every the entire feel the entire vibe like everything is just 
very stern and serious. And there there were beautiful moments of of very intense, pleasurable uh, pleasurable sensations and uh, peaceful sensations. But there were long interims of very uncomfortable, intense, just onslaught of psychedelia that's mm-hmm. relentless, you know? Um, it feels but, to me with kind of with tryptamines generally, but with ayahuasca, like the energy is kind of coming at you and sort of assailing you, and it can be incredibly beautiful and uh, uh, involving and you know sort of mind blowing. But with a peyote and with phenethylamines generally, it feels more like the energy is kind of radiating, radiating out of you. You know, it feels mm-hmm. pointed in a different direction. And you also kind of get that long come up that uh, you kind of ride that wave and you, you know, you're able to kind of feel it out as you begin to enter into a more intense portion of the experience. Whereas ayahuasca, it's like you go from sitting on your mat wondering what's gonna, when it's going to kick in to being in full blown psychedelic hell within a span of maybe 60 seconds, you know? Yeah, right. <laughs> so uh, quite, quite a uh, differing um experiences now i haven't had an experience with san pedro at this point i'm looking to do that this year for sure um and i've heard that the san pedro ceremony is a quite different uh ritual can you speak to that uh aspect of uh, mescaline use in, in any way yeah i mean it's um it's you know if, if you go back to the sort of very um the first accounts of the spanish when they arrived in mexico um they talk about um uh peyote being used in two different ways and one is the way that also you know the spanish the jesuits and people talk about it being used in uh big san pedro being used in 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 peru and colombia and the way it's still used today with a kind of curandero and that's more much, much more like a kind of one-to-one um healing ceremony mm-hmm. uh so you have a Corandero and you go to see them, uh, you make an appointment, you know, if you go to those coastal towns in Peru, you see little, uh, you know, little cards in the, in the streets and the lampposts saying, you know, call this, um, call this number or come up these stairs. And um, the Corandero who works with San Pedro traditionally has uh, what they call a mesa, which is a, a table with lots of different objects on, um, you know, effigies of saints and kind of bones and seashells and, uh, you know, things that are sort of relevant to their life, personal stuff. And um, the San Pedro is always um, brewed up and drunk. And so the curandero and the, the patient kind of do this together. Uh, and then you, you know, there's always a lot of incense and a lot of, and you, you create this kind of, magical moment with this mesa in the middle and uh you look at all the different objects and different things catch the light in different ways and you know almost like you know turning over tarot cards or something uh and then you kind of have this thing where you know the corandero and the patient and the san pedro like everybody is working together to kind of open up this story whatever it is that the patients come with and it might be something medical it might be you know some physical healing is needed but it can often be you know my my cousin is in is in lima in the big city what's going on with her or i lost my wedding ring where is it or uh, a lot of bad things have happened to me has someone put a curse on me so it's this kind of one-on-one ritual you know which you can also as i said you know that was kind of um you know the uh 
the Aztecs and those pe people used um, peyote in that same way as well. But also, you know, from the early days, um, you know, in the north of Mexico, in sort of what's now Huichol country, then uh, people witnessed, you know, big communal um, uh, peyote ceremonies with a whole village joining in, usually around a fire, usually at night, you know, everybody dancing and singing. You know, so I think, you know, those are the two different modalities that uh, both the cacti have been used in, you know, for, for millennia. That's very interesting. Um, I was just getting through the portion of uh, of your latest book concerning uh, Shavin de Wankar. Oh, yeah. And, and uh, I one of my first interviews for this show was with a gentleman named Max uh, Maxwell Wheland. Um, he is an American who has traveled fairly extensively in Peru and South America in general, um, spending a good deal of time in Chavín uh, de Huancar. Mm -hmm. And he- I've been there as well, yeah. Cool, uh, yeah, he was, that's the first time I had, that's the first time I had ever uh, come in contact with, I didn't know that place existed and he was explaining it to me. Um, but he is uh, in a practice He's kind of developed his own practice with the San Pedro. He actually utilizes a uh, very high dose San Pedro um, facilitation at night, um, sometimes in conjunction with like psilocybin. Um, but he was explaining to me how there's kind of this stigma in Peru that um, San Pedro isn't as capable a healer as ayahuasca or maybe not as potent a healer as ayahuasca um and he's he's kind of trying to spread the word that san pedro is as is as potent and a capable a healer as uh, ayahuasca is do you have any experience or have you come across any um high dose uh, san pedro practice or anything like that does that ring uh -huh. I've, I've had high doses of san pedro myself uh mm -hmm. awesome um in indigenous use on the coast it's pretty much it's what we would call a sub psychedelic dose um it's uh you know as it, you know as as the peyote is in the native american church you know you you've got to you've got to hold it together you know you've got to sing you've got to pass the drum on the rattle you know you've got to be you've got to be there you've got to be present with the group it's not about like kind of blast off yeah. And the same, with the, the same with the San Pedro, quite often, and I've had um, people who make uh, San Pedro potions in Peru quite often add a little bit of um, Brugmansia or Datura, Floripondio, as they call it. Um, the idea being that San Pedro is like a little bit slow and sluggish, you know, that thing you get when you're coming up on um, uh, the sort of cactus you know it can be a bit kind of um you feel a little bit queasy and uh you know your sort of uh, uh, blood pressure drops a little bit and the idea is you put in a little bit of um datura or something that's going to give you woof, a bit some some energy uh and that really horrible dry mouth and kind of some weird sort of slightly dark jagged stuff i'm, I'm not a, i'm not a huge fan of that but that i mean that but, but that's a traditional um that's that's a traditional preparation. Um, but I think in terms of the way that San Pedro was traditionally used, I mean, it's, in, it, you know, it's interesting that it wasn't really until the 60s that anybody hang on, hang, stop, pause, pause for one second. We're getting some interference. 
buffer out real quick. I'm sorry to pause you. No worries. Okay. You seem to be back in a reasonable state of non-glitchiness. Okay, continue. I'm sorry. Okay, I can, uh, I can pick that up. But as for how San Pedro was used traditionally for healing, it was only really in the 50s and 60s that, um, well, that, you know, botanists figured out there was actually mescaline in it. Uh, and that anthropologists started to go, hey, on the coast of Peru, there's this whole curandero kind of thing with this um, sacred cactus. You know, so we don't, you know, and that was at that point quite marginal, you know, in these um, sort of coastal cities. And yeah, anthropologists, I guess, weren't interested because they were much more interested in the, you know, the pristine stuff, the jungle stuff. And, you know, the um, uh, San Pedro uh, curanderos were much more syncretic. You know, they were kind of like in the city and working with a lot of different traditions. So it was kind of felt to be not so pure. But anyway, you know, there was not very much of that going on and it was not really appreciated until recently what it was. So when we talk about sort of San Pedro ceremonies now, it's globalized so fast, you know, like in the, even in the 60s and the 70s in the kind of psychedelic heyday, it was just not really part of the picture. So uh -huh. now kind of San Pedro is kind of a global thing and it's up for grabs and everybody can pretty much say what the San Pedro ceremony is, you know, because, uh, you know, that traditional um, source is kind of, is, is, you know, it's is still a very sort of small and little understood. Uh-huh. Um, another thing I thought was interesting that you touched on in your book is the is the stark difference in the actual cactuses themselves, the peyote being this kind of short, squat, mm -hmm. pincushion-esque plant that likes to sort of hide in the shade, uh, low to the ground, obviously, and then you have the kind of towering, uh, fast-growing San Pedro. Um, isn't it very odd that these are – you know, other than these, well, this vast uh, family of cacti that contain trace amounts of mescaline, various um, different uh, alkaloids, but that these two very opposing cactuses or cacti are the only two concentrated um, places on the earth where mescaline is found. I, I just, I've, I've always been fascinated by that. It is super odd. And um, whenever I, um, you know, gets to meet a sort of really um, eminent uh, botanist or biochemist or cactologist, I ask them, what's the story? And everybody just says, it's really strange because actually mescaline is not a very complicated alkaloid. You know, it's made from amino acids that are everywhere. You know, why isn't, so the, you know, what's puzzling to them is why isn't there more mescaline? Why, you know, like DMT, for example, which is in so many different families of plants, why is mescaline only in the cacti? And then why is it only in these two cacti that are so distantly related to one another? And um, yeah, like you say, I mean, if you go up to Chavin up in Peru, um, the village around there, you're up in the high desert and, you know, people grow big stands of San Pedro as windbreaks around their houses. You know, it's kind of really fast growing and it's just kind of everywhere. It's very sort of, uh, you know, sort of routine day-to-day -day plant. Uh, whereas the peyote, as you say, is something that only hides in very sort of remote kind of areas of desert. And um, I mean, true, we haven't bioassayed every single cactus in the world. You know, there may be other mescaline sources out there. 
but we can say for sure that these are the only two, you know, sources of mescaline that have been used kind of traditionally in sacred practices. Mm-hmm. Um, we were kind of touching on it earlier as far as the conservation of this peyote because it is kind of dis well not kind of it's basically disappearing in southern Texas and in northern Mexico where it's um, where it's native to. Um, mm-hmm. There is, however, a kind of odd boutique fascination with it in other countries. I believe it, either Thailand or Vietnam they have like a very they have like a thriving underground Lafafara growing community. Um, is that right? Yeah, I, I've I've kind of stumbled onto it myself. I, I'm fairly certain it's Thailand. Um, they have this whole kind of fascinating underground growth community that grows is pretty pretty well dedicated to Lafafara Williamsii. Um, but well, I mean, that, that, you know, that's it, it, a great gardening culture there. I mean, yeah. I think. Um, San Pedro is just grows so much faster. Most of the people I know who are um, growing it around the world, and this includes Australia and places, um, you know, find that it's just so much more productive. I mean, I've had a, you know, a few peyote plants for uh, 10, 15 years. And, uh, you know, if you if you cut the tops of them, then they will pop. Um, but if you leave them, then they don't visibly do very much. The taproot is kind of thickening underground. Um, But, you know, I think what would really address this, um, you know, peyote supply and demand problem is if cultivation was legal. Sure. And that's and I think that's kind of the one call that everybody should be getting behind, you know, because the um, the decrim psychedelics movement, you know, have kind of, um, uh, you know, have have their own interest in it along with ayahuasca and everything else but so do the native american church you know and there's a bit of this kind of thing of not quite enough to go around so um yeah i mean that's my i guess my two calls in this are one you know use san pedro grow san pedro and the other is you know let's get cultivation um going of of peyote let's get that legalized somehow absolutely i agree with you on both of those um it seems to be um, this kind of uh, Thai um, fascination with Lafafra with growing peyote. It seems to be almost strictly aesthetic. I don't think they grow right. it for uh, they don't grow it for the use of the psychoactive compound. They they grow it because it's a, a pretty a, an aesthetically pleasing plant. So. Um, Anyways, I just found that fascinating. Yeah, no, that's interesting. I was, when I was in Oklahoma, I saw a couple of, uh, you know, legendary peyotes. That, uh, you know, a roadman often has like their own, what they call a, a grandfather peyote or, a, um, uh, a, you know, that they put on the altar that they carry around with them that's part of their kit. And it's often like a really beautifully shaped one or beautifully preserved or a particularly large one. And mm. often over years and years, they kind of, twirl the top of it into a spiral and i saw ones that were 100 years old dried peyotes that had just had this incredibly beautiful spiral fractal shape you know so i can totally down with the uh, aesthetics of the peyote cactus yeah um very interesting how these different cultures around the world find the same cactus fascinating for different reasons i just think that's that's very interesting um so 
beyond specifically mescaline, which I feel like we've touched pretty well thus far, mm-hmm. um, you've written several other books um, and specifically a few concerning drugs and or psychedelics. Uh, what inspires you to work in these kind of what I would consider underrepresented arenas of uh, academia? Yeah, I think you've uh, you've hit it right there. It's um, it, it, it's underrepresented. I've been doing this for a, for, for a long time, on and off. I mean, maybe about twenty years. Like my sort of first book, uh, when I, and that was really that I started, um, you know, reading what was out there in you know in academia and the scholarly li- literature about the history of of, um, of psychedelics and drugs in general. And firstly, there was very little, and secondly. You know, you could tell by most of it, like by page two, that this is written by somebody who hadn't taken the drug themselves, you know, yeah. like especially kind of books about the history of opium. And, um, you know, you just it really immediately when people start talking about dr- drugs, and I think academics didn't see it as their job to kind of experience the drugs that they were writing about the experience of. Mm-hmm. And it's just bullshit if you don't do that, you know, so um that was, I guess, kind of why I started writing, because it seemed to me that, uh, you know, once you were interested in the drug experience and once that was where you started from uh, and you were properly curious about that, then there was this huge amount of fascinating material out there that nobody had really dealt with. And then the reason I guess I stuck with it is partly, you know, being a freelance writer, I just, you know, people would kind of come back to me. I kind of became the drugs guy. Um, but also... For me, it's such an interesting territory because uh, it gives you just license to roam across all these different um, different areas. You know, there's a whole kind of, you know, sort of science from chemistry to, um, you know, psychology and neuroscience, but also art and literature, anthropology and um, philosophy. And, uh, you know, so there are so many ways of... Um, you know, if you're writing about drugs, you can kind of, you, you can you can just, you know, suddenly you can turn and different facets catch the light and you can write whole different stories, you know, really fascinating biographies as well of people. If you start to understand, you know, why they came to uh, a drug or a psychedelic and the experience that they had and what they got out of it, you know, it's full of just full of wonderful stories and wonderful characters. So I've carried on with it. Yeah. And I think you do a really good job of navigating the various uh facets of the history of these uh compounds um i can see how that would be particularly interesting um for a writer to be able to follow these kind of alkaloids as they weave their way through various aspects of the human experience yeah that's exactly it and uh isn't it strange how how widely reaching these these compounds really are like they seem to you know they touch so many core aspects of the human experience from you know philosophy to and the anthropology the ethnobotany all these different they're so deeply intermingled in our history um that you can just take one of these alkaloids like mescaline and there's this whole long rich history of all these crazy shit really going on behind the scenes, you know, like with Quanta Parker and um, all the Peruvian stuff and the South American stuff. It's just fascinating how you can, and that's just one compound and it's like a plethora. Obviously, you know, you wrote a whole book about it. So uh, yeah, 
I just so find think, that, that yeah, you know, I, you know, drugs are a very good way of kind of getting into other cultures. You know, like like sort of other things like food are. You know, if you kind of sit in a kitchen with someone who's cooking, you know, you learn a lot about the culture that way. But I think um, kind of you know, psychoactive drugs and plants, particularly, they kind of take you right to the center of the culture in a really interesting way. Absolutely, absolutely, I agree with and you. I think also it's kind of you know when you try and write about them. You can't really write about them just with one discipline. You know, you can't really just try and contain them and say, um, I mean, I guess like if you're a specialist in drugs, you're a pharmacologist. But if you're a pharmacologist, then, yeah, you understand, you know, their molecular structure and their interactions and uh, their neurochemistry. But, you know, that doesn't you, but then you don't understand that doesn't give you any special understanding of, you know, why the Native American peyote meeting is the way it is, or why the San Pedro ceremony is the way it is, or kind of, uh, you know, how kind of MDMA kind of um, launched kind of rave culture, you know, and all these kind of dimensions are way beyond the drug itself. Absolutely, absolutely. I think you do a great job of rounding all those things up. Um, you also seem particularly privy to bits of information that strike me as obscure. Um, does this speak to a strenu strenuous research technique? Um, I, it's just, just in the reading of your, of your mescaline book, I, there's like, in, it's chock full of information that seems like so outlandishly hard to track down. How do you uh, do all that? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's partly cause I just, um, you know, I've kept my eyes open, you know, for a long time, but also there is a lot more out there than people realize, you know, um, I mean, the, within kind of psychedelic culture if we can talk about psychedelic culture the same information usually tends to circulate and it usually circulates because you know maybe terence mckenna referenced it or gordon wasson or something you know but then um i guess writing about other stuff i kind of you know I've, i i look for stuff outside the frame like i mean for example in the mescaline book i happen to know because of the work i've done on the history of madness in psychiatry that um there were some psychiatrists in um in the Maudsley hospital in london in the 1930s who were studying hallucinations and um they decided well mescaline produces hallucinations right so let's give mescaline to some people and they did lots of trials and then they thought well we need somebody who can kind of um represent what they're seeing and uh so we need to give it to some artists and uh then they um, so they rounded up a bunch of surrealists, um, surrealist artists because they thought, well, surrealists will be good because they, you know, they work with the unconscious and they probably do automatic drawing or writing and stuff. Uh, so, yeah, there was this whole experiment where all, all these surrealists were given mescaline and kind of um, drew and painted their hallucinations. And um, all these pictures are archived, you know, in London. They've never been shown. Um, so to me, that was an amazing thing to discover. And, you know, there's absolutely, you know, and I kind of Googled and looked around for references for this and sort of, you know, sort of in the psychedelic framework and, you know, just um, crickets, nothing, you know, I mean, even on kind of um, Erewid and, you know, these awesome sites that round everything up, nobody had ever looked for that. So I think part of, um, I think a lot of the good stuff I find is, looking outside kind of what we think of as the psychedelic world so looking at um you know psychiatry or art or kind of different aspects of history um you know there's actually a lot more stuff out there that can be brought into this story that isn't normally included yep 
Um, yeah, that's very interesting. I think you, uh, once again, I have to say, I think you do a good job of, of finding all those little intricate pieces that make it such a, uh, robust story, you know, because mm-hmm. a lot, you know, I've read a lot of stuff about peyote, San Pedro, Mescaline. Um, but I think it requires all those tiny little pieces that are, uh, some, somewhat obscure and maybe hard to dig up. Um, that create this very full picture of it and this very um, deep understanding. So I think I heard this in a recent podcast you did with somebody else. You're talking about Hunter S. Thompson and the probability that he was not true consuming true mescaline. Does that ring any bells? Definitely. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm trying to remember when I talked about that. Well, it's kind of, um, uh, he said, I mean, his, I mean, fear and loathing, you know, is kind of what we think of as the masculine trip. But if you go back to that, it's like um, there's this point in the book where everything is kind of kicking off and getting totally crazy. And his um, Samoan attorney, as he is in the book, says, uh, OK, let's take the masculine. And then after that, he doesn't really describe what the masculine does. It just gets subsumed into the general craziness. But uh, he did before that, he wrote a piece um, about his first masculine trip. And um, he describes that as being with um, a spansul of mescaline combined with some stimulant, some kind of speed, mm-hmm. uh, which, um, you know, and, you know, Hunter Thompson, you know, the great street pharmacologist, you know, the guy who knew everything. It's kind of odd that it's like, well, I had this mescaline, but it was kind of cut with speed. I don't know what that was about. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and I don't know. I never heard of, um, I, I dug around a lot in the, um, uh, you know, in, in, in all the sort of DEA vaults at that time where they kind of listed everything, you know, all the sort of, you know, busts and seizures and what drugs were out there. Uh, and it's all it, and it's all pretty murky. I, I never found any other example because mescaline was so kind of rare and precious, and speed yeah. was everywhere. It seems kind of odd that you combine the two. I mean, yeah. I, I, it does. It you know, it does make a little bit of sense because, as you know, a mescaline trip can be, especially in a high dose. You know, it can pretty much steamroller you. And uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think there's. Um, there's a bit of a bit of sense to it, but it's still kind of like um, you know, it's not exactly clear what that experience was on. But I think he described, you know, in that first piece, which he calls um, first visit with mescalito, he's just read um, Castaneda, which he thinks is bullshit, and he takes his mescaline and kind of uh, he writes his own experience. I think he, he kind of writes it up really beautifully, but it is a very speedy, crazy, paranoid version of the mescaline trip. Yeah, um, I always thought that as well, especially how he's like, uh, we're somewhere on the edge of Barstow. We've got uh, 100 tabs of Orange Sunshine LSD, and we've got 60 pellets of high-grade mescaline or whatever. I'm like, well, that seems like a whole lot of this very obscure drug. Like, you have to kind of, I mean, I've been involved in psychedelic culture now for 15 years, and I can tell you I've never seen any even inkling that someone involved in this culture has or knew someone who had pure mescaline so um i mean i well i i I wasn't going to write this book without um kind of taking pure mescaline myself so i did i did source some but i think part of the reason for um uh 
you know, that uh, the way that Hunter Thompson uses it in Fear and Loathing is that by that time, by 1970, it was kind of legendary. Of course, as I'm saying, everybody's heard of it, but it wasn't really around on the streets. So I think it's also a bit of a literary device. He's kind of saying, you know, he's thinking, okay, I need to take this up to a whole other level. What's this kind of psychedelic I can drop in there that, uh, you know, nobody will have actually done, but everybody will have heard of. And then yeah, I, the book he does, he kind of ups it again with adrenochrome. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. And I've always kind of felt that way. Um, and I just uh, thought it funny because I heard you talking about that on another podcast. Um, but yeah, he does kind of seem to want to just push that envelope in his writing style. You know, I mean, how much, how much more drug addled and crazed can you be? So you've got to, you know, he's already done all the acid and the cocaine in the whole world. So he's just got to keep kind of ratcheting it up with the, uh, even to the point of the adrenochrome, which is, you know, is it real? I don't know. There's a lot of conspiracies floating around about adrenochrome I've right now, actually. Kind of, I've noticed that it's made its way into a lot of that kind of Q stuff and uh, conspiracies. Um, yeah. There's a lot of, um, yeah, no, it's weird. I write, um, you'll get to that bit in the book where, um, you know, it's about Humphrey Osmond and those um, people, you know, uh, those psychiatrists, the people who introduced Aldous Huxley to mescaline. Um, it's... Uh, uh, Osmond and Hoffer um, come up with the idea that um, adrenochrome might be the first kind of, you know, psychedelic drug that's been found in the in, in the human bloodstream. Uh, and a, mm. So it's a, it's like a 1950s version of, um, you know, the endogenous DMT theories that we get now. It's kind of the beginning of all that. Yeah, very interesting. Um, so let's see here. What do you think... What do you think about mescaline or the psychedelic? Ex well, let's let's just let's say let's start with the psychedelic experience. And if you would like to um, reduce it down to mescaline, you can. I mean, that might be kind of difficult to do. But what do you think? What role do you think the psychedelic experience uh, plays in human progression? And kind of what is it that these plant medicines have to offer humanity, in your opinion? Yeah, I think they are. Um... You know, we could see we we could see them maybe as prosthetics, as something that extend our reach in the way that our other tools do, but they extend our reach into our own consciousness uh, in ways that really change the way that we see the world. And mm -hmm. um, you know, there are so many different ways of of going with that, of using it. And I think um, you know, for us um, for us Westerners, you know, these are chemicals these are kind of substances that kind of float around in our culture um and i'm very struck by um you know the way in which we can do so many different things with them i mean if you you know you could be holding you know if you had to 400 grams of mescaline you know you could go okay this is a scientific experiment i'm going to take this and i'm going to see what it does to me and i'm going to record it and uh or you could hold it and say, okay, this is a sacrament. I'm going to have a religious experience. Or you could say, you know, I'm going to take this and I'm going to make some art. You yeah. know, we, we, we don't have a kind of ready-made frame for them, you know, so sure. I think they have all these different possibilities for us. Yeah, it's kind of a, a choose-your-own-adventure book in that aspect, I yeah, guess. It all right. 
it all kind of depends on your intention. And I've kind of run the gamut of those intentions in my life. I, you know, I, I started out as a, a um, starry-eyed kind of brain candy psychonaut. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I did that whole thing for like 10 years, just having, you know, very profound and intense experiences, mostly with psilocybin or LSD. Um, and then I had my first ayahuasca experiences, and that was like, a whole different facet of the experience opening up to me. It was like, okay, I had never, I'd always kind of read and heard about these spiritual experiences and I've gotten close to what could be considered a spiritual experience with psilocybin and LSD. The thing was, I just kind of wasn't framing it that way in my own psyche. Yep. But then I had this undeniably spiritually touching experience with ayahuasca and so then I was able to kind of like after that, I've been able to kind of apply that framework to my, say, psilocybin experiences. Right. Um, and now that I kind of understand that aspect of it, it's like, OK, you can apply this yourself to other substances and, and other not not even a consumption of substances, various other spiritual practices in your life that are uh, useful in that manner. Uh, we're coming up on an hour here. I know you're a busy man. Um, why don't you tell us what's next on the radar for you, Mike? Uh, what projects are you currently working on? What do our listeners need to know about your life right now? Well, my life right now is kind of um, is locked down, you know, like everybody else is. Um, but that does mean I have plenty of time to read and to think. Um, I am kind of working around sort of territory that I've become um, come to know quite well, but I'm sort of thinking about it in a new way because of the way that contemporary psychedelic culture is going. I'm very interested in this sort of period at the end of the 19th century, um, drugs in that moment, because um, that's before, you know, our modern category of drugs gets formed. You know, at that point, mm-hmm. you know, this is some things that you can buy over the counter in a pharmacy, some things that you know, doctors and scientists use, you know, some herbal medicines from non-Western cultures, you know, and they don't, this doesn't all come together to become drugs until that particular moment, kind of. uh, So, uh, and the other thing that's really interesting about that moment for me is that, um, you know, scientists, doctors and everybody are taking these drugs themselves, you know. So, I mean, I find our contemporary psychedelic science it's interesting, but, you know, it's, you know, brain scans, you know, what, I mean, if you're interested in the brain, of course, it's really interesting, but if not, how much are they really telling us about the experience? So I've been immersing myself in this period when, you know, doctors and scientists and people who were researching drugs would take them themselves. And these people were also, um, you know, very kind of well-rounded writers, you know, often they, you know, doctors and scientists were also poets and novelists. And to be a doctor in those days before the world of tick box diagnoses, you had to be very good at describing symptoms. So to me, the medical literature of that period when people write about drugs is really fascinating. And the more going back there kind of with the eyes of where we are now, you can see that so much of this is about the same themes that we have now. It's about uh, drugs as things that can, you know, optimize us and kind of, you know, sort of, you know, make us into, um, you know, better suited for modern life. They're things that, you know, drugs and the way that they can 
extend our consciousness into unfamiliar realms and what are the possibilities of that and uh, you know let's look at other cultures through the drugs that they use you know all these things that we're interested in now um you know there's a lot of stuff there so that's kind of what i'm thinking is of writing something about drugs in that you know in in that period a kind of prehistory of um you know sort of uh, our uh, modern western engagement with psychedelics sure okay good deal um so we generally don't recommend on this show that anyone take any mind-altering substances but in these trying times uh is this is this a good time to be exploring one's consciousness via these uh these uh psychedelic medicines or these psychedelic compounds is, is this a good time for that since we're oh, all I'm... cooped up inside and we're all scared shitless should we be uh <laughs> i'm like you i would never recommend you know because everybody is coming from a different place and everybody is going to a different place you know don't assume that everybody is coming from the same place as you or going to the same place as you so um you know i think i'm really interested in um the exploration of psychedelics that's going on now um uh i'm kind of tuned into it and i'm trying to um feed it and nourish it and enrich it a little bit with some history and some background and some context and some other ways of thinking about this so that's 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 kind of where i am on that but okay uh, <laughs> but put it, you on the spot but, there <laughs> but, but yeah, it, is, it is interesting to think that we're now heading into a different type of social engagement which will doubtless change our relationship with these kind of experiences and with these materials mm-hmm. yeah i think we are on the cusp of something drastic here i think we're on a cusp of some some kind of a paradigm shift and you know part of me wants to be excited for what's coming but i think it's going to get worse before it gets better just talking about our current state of uh, global affairs with this whole covid virus thing um so. yeah for, for sure it's going to get worse as i was saying i've been talking to a friend in italy and what we've got coming you know is going to be it's going to be tough uh, but also i think it's asking fundamental questions about you know our political and economic system and um, whether that is going to be fit for purpose in the future and it is possible i think that positive and radical change um, is going to be an outcome of this i agree with you and i hope uh i hope you know that's all we can hope for at this point i guess because this is something that's completely out of everyone's hands right um Mike J, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Tell our listeners where they can find you, where they can get your book and things like that, brief, however briefly, and then we'll go ahead and close out. That's great. Oh, thank you so much, Clinton. I really enjoyed that. Um, my book is called uh, Mescaline, A Global History of the First Psychedelic, and it's in hardback right now and also um, an audio book. Uh, if you go to my website, which is mikej.net, that's M-I-K-E-J-A-Y.net, or if you just put in my name uh, into Google, it kind of it comes up. Uh, and there is, well, there are a whole bunch of articles there about, um, which include quite a lot of stuff about the history of drugs and psychedelics. And there's also all my other books there. And if you go to the Mescaline page, then there's, um, you know, there's reviews, articles, there's stuff like um, film of my sort of session at Breaking Convention in London last year. And uh, um, yeah, all the podcasts uh, to which this will be added as soon as it's up. All right. Thanks a lot, Mike. Well, I really appreciate you uh, taking time out of your 
busy lockdown schedule to uh, join us for a chat. I, I hope that you stay safe over there across the pond, brother. And uh, I hope to one day uh, meet you in real life and hopefully we'll cross paths in the future. But thank you so much for coming on the show today. Oh, you too. Thank you so much. All right. And there you have it, folks. Our interview with the indomitable Mike J. I am still somewhat in disbelief that we have another, such another high caliber, excellent quality guest. Not that all of our guests aren't of the same high caliber and excellent quality, but I just finished his book, um, Mescaline, A History of the World's First Psychedelic. During, at the point of our conversation, I was in the midst of finishing it. I have currently uh, finished that book. And I cannot recommend it more highly if you're looking for a the most in-depth discussion on the history, ethnobotany, pharmacology, religious use, all that uh, of mescaline. Fascinating stuff. Thank you, Mike J. So much for coming on the show. It was a real pleasure speaking with you. We will have to do it again sometime, brother. Beyond all that, guys... Um, I forgot to give you a quote last week, and that really bums me out because I want to do my quote every time at the end of the episode. So today, we're going to give you the quote that you expect and the quote that you deserve. Once again, before we sign off, we would like to implore you to follow us on the social medias at Psychedelicast on Instagram and Facebook. Get involved with the discussions there. Uh, Share the things that we share. Share those with your friends and family, people you love, those in the culture. Uh, subscribe to our show on whatever podcatcher you're using leave us a review on iTunes and Google Play and Spotify and all that good stuff we certainly appreciate it it helps the show to reach a wider audience and it helps us to continue giving you the great content that you expect, deserve and love. With that being said let's do our quote we leave you with one today from Mr. Aldous Huxley himself opening the doors of perception for us in so many ways To quote Mr. Huxley, the ordinary waking consciousness is a very useful and, on most occasions, an indispensable state of mind, but it is by no means the only form of consciousness, nor in all circumstances the best. In so far as he transcends his ordinary self and his ordinary mode of awareness, the mystic is able to enlarge his vision, to look more deeply into the unfathomable miracle of existence. The mystical experience is doubly valuable. It is valuable because it gives the experiencer a better understanding of himself and the world and because it may help him to lead a less self-centered and more creative life. Thank you for choosing to be with us once again, Psychedelicasters, and thank you for joining us in Prying Open the Third Eye. Stay safe out there. We love you.